The following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. Remember I had all those verses about not fearing? And uh, I think I added to my collection since then. I don't, I've, I've totally lost track of the number now, um, but it was somewhere over 100 to begin with. And I found some others, fear not. Daniel was told, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Peace be to you. Be strong. Yes, be strong. Uh, John 12, verse 15 says, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Jesus said to the sons of Zebedee, James and John, who were partners with Simon. And uh, he said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on you will catch men. That's a good word, isn't it? Uh, There's another one. Matthew 10.28 Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. By the way, are we live now? All right, good. Matthew 10.31 Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. That was from Matthew 10 and Luke 12. And then Luke 12.32 also. This verse always reminds me of our brother Thurman because he likes to quote it. Uh, Fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Isn't that a good word? Fear not. It is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And even in the uh, maybe smaller issues of life that uh, are big to us, Elijah in 1 Kings 17 said to a woman, Do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make uh, make me a small cake first and bring it to me, and afterward make some for yourself and your son. And she was, uh, you know, Mother Hubbard's cupboard was pretty bare over there. And she did what she was told and God provided for for her. Well, those are just some uh, thoughts to uh, fill the gap of time between uh, ending the one part of our service and beginning the next. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, if you would please. 10, 10 2, rather, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13. We'll get to Matthew 10 in due course, but not today. That will take us far, far too long. Between here and there is the Sermon on the Mount. And if you think you can do that in one message, well, don't think that. All right. Uh, We're in the midst of our exposition in the book of Matthew, and we're in chapter 2. We've seen of the Magi or Magoi from the east have come to worship the Lord Jesus in His birth at his birth, or just afterwards, rather. And uh, they come, and we remember all of that. Herod inquires. The Pharisees respond. Bethlehem is the place. They go to Bethlehem. They find the child. They worship the child. Give the child the gifts. And uh, verse number 12 says, divinely being warned divinely in a dream, they departed another way to their own country. 
We pick up at verse 13 where we left off that exposition last time and I'll read the text and then we'll just draw a few comments out of it for you this evening. It says in verse 13, When they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother and flee to Egypt and stay there until I bring you word for Herod will seek the young child to destroy him. When he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt and was there until the death of Herod, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophets, saying, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he was deceived by the wise men, was exceedingly angry and sent forth and put to death all the male children who were in Bethlehem in all its districts from two years old and under, according to the time which he had determined from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. I'm going to stop reading there for the moment. The section title I put in my notes, Fleeing with the Newborn King. We've seen the uh, birthplace of the newborn king. We've seen the seeking and worshiping of the newborn king. We've seen a mixed reaction to the newborn king, in fact. Now we're fleeing with him. And so another special revelation instructs Joseph as to the protection of his child There was no other miracle forthcoming, however. In order to do the protecting of the child, Joseph could not have God snap his fingers and just move them to a safe place. He had to do something. Joseph had to move his young family far away to save the life of the little Messiah. It is notable that the Bible tells us that he immediately began to obey the command of the Lord. It says, when he arose, he took the young child and his mother by night and departed for Egypt. Can you imagine? Talk about a night terror. A nightmare. A a divine visitation telling you that brought stress and grief and fear into that little family that night and the days ahead as they moved quickly away from Bethlehem and fear for their child's life. Think of the fear and the anxiety that must have been in their hearts. Think of young parents in the early years of their child's life. The young child is not even aware. Parents are concerned about fevers and breathing problems and hospital and doctor visits and and sicknesses that seem never to go away. They're watched by the minute and the hour. But they do pass eventually, thank God. But suppose that you are told that your baby is part of an assassination attempt. And that's what it is because Jesus rightfully belonged upon the throne that Herod sat upon at the moment. He was a king. And so it was not just a regular old murder. It was an assassination attempt on the life of the king. What do you do? You're fugitive. You flee for your life, for your child's life, your own life. Amazing. 
And so Joseph obeyed God. Almost uh, in, in a sort of an afterthought, Matthew comments that this going down to Egypt to save his life made Jesus like the nation of Israel before him. Did you see that? That is, God called Israel his national son out of Egypt. Later on here in the chapter, he would call Joseph to bring Jesus, the divine son, also out of Egypt, back to the land of Israel. And uh, Matthew recites here from Hosea chapter 11, verse number 1, Out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you remember in the book of Hosea, which you probably don't, but that is just exactly how it's said in the, in the text. It says here in Hosea 11.1, 1, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. There is no prophecy there. I, I, I almost weary of saying that over and over again. There's no prophecy. There's no prediction. It is simply a statement of historical fact. That's what God did in His grace. And so Matthew is using the word fulfill in a way that we should understand is not to say that there's a prophecy or a prediction there in Hosea. He's using fulfill in a Jewish way, not in a Western uh, 20th or 21st century way of thinking of the word fulfill. You know, we're always thinking about predictions of the future and all that, as I say, Nostradamus stuff and everything, you know, and and the pastors who receive a word from God and they have some, you know, unique prophecy that they make and we're all focused and keyed in on that. That's not how Matthew was at all. Matthew's mindset was, this is not a predictive prophecy, even though it gives people today fits to try to figure out it shouldn't. Rather, Matthew is simply suggesting fulfillment in another sense by analogy. By analogy, whereby he notes a similarity between the present circumstances and the past circumstances. You have to get in your mind that that is a way to use the word fulfill in the New Testament. Matthew does it several times. It's by way of analogy, not by way of predictive fulfillment, and certainly not by way of changing the meaning of the original text in Hosea. Just burn that into your mind and you will be well set for your quest to interpret and understand the Bible, especially as to the use of the Old Testament by the New Testament. Just get that principle in. We have just an analogy here. Uh, Matthew is fond of using these analogies that are, quote, fulfillments of a sort. But if we get over all of that kind of hermeneutical confusion and we just simply say, look, it's an analogy we can appreciate better what Matthew is doing. He's saying, look, Jesus is the perfect Israelite. He is like the nation of Israel, only way better. Right? Even to the point that he had to go down to Israel, to Egypt, and then to be called out. Now, of course, the human baby was not conscious of all this in the sense that a regular human baby would be uh, like him, just you know, oblivious to what his parents are doing, trying to save his life. But he was sent down to Egypt to save his life as Israel was sent down to Egypt. Remember the 70 went down? You know, why are you sitting around the table looking at each other? Go get some food. And then they went down and they were saved. 
physically saved. And so Jesus also physically saved and then brought back out of the land of Egypt and called back into Israel. Out of Egypt, I have called my son, God says. In this next subsection in verse 16, Herod implemented his plan after he realized the Magi had not obeyed his orders. He was so enraged that he ordered the murder of all the baby boys under two years old to ensure that there would be no usurper to his throne. He was, he was quite a long-range uh, thinker because such a baby would not be a threat to his throne for approximately two decades, right? 20-year-old or 18-year-old or 22-year-old young person. Probably not, I mean, you know, unless he feared a, a boy king like a Josiah or something like that, you know, eight years old taking over the throne, I doubt it. Uh, so, but he, he, he did not account for the possibility that the child had moved out of the area already. Of course, Joseph had help, <laughs> divine help. Now, his butchery here, and that's what I'll call it, butchery, is as brutal as what the Pharaoh did nearly 2,000 years earlier when he ordered the male Hebrew children to be thrown into the Nile River. By large numbers, evidently. And such vile leadership has plagued our world, hasn't it? Can you point me, I, I don't know the answer to this, but maybe you do or can figure it out. Can you point me to a generation in recent memory or in history, the benefit of all your history books, in which there has not been such butchery amongst the human race. Think of the Holocaust. Think of Stalin's. Think of the gulags. Think of the death camps. Think of China even presently with concentration camps and all the rest. Right now, Pol Pot untold genocides, the Armenian genocide. What generation? I mean, that, I've just listed enough to, to cover almost ten generations and, and we're only talking in the last couple hundred years, not even. Our modern society has not advanced at all compared to 2,000 and 3,500 years ago. 2,000 years ago being this time. 3,500 years ago being... Uh, you know, the time of the Exodus or before that. In 2017, by the way, I should have mentioned on Sunday it was Sanctity of Life Sunday. And it just totally slipped because I was all into this missionary Sunday. And, uh, you know, so anyway, in 2017 there were 862,000 abortions in our country. 18.4% of pregnancies, almost one out of five, end with an abortion. I'm not talking about a miscarriage. I'm talking about an abortion. There's no Pharaoh. There's no Herod ordering this slaughter. It's only the depraved nature of individuals and society that is responsible for this slaying. The cheering of tens of thousands in Argentina recently because of the recent legalization of abortion there is another example. People cheering for the death of babies. 
No different, that is, than spectators cheering at the Roman Colosseum for the death of a gladiator or a prisoner. Is it? Can you, can you give me any substantive difference? It's utter depravity. And so, we might read with horror what has happened here with the massacre of the innocents under Herod, but it's nothing new. It's old. It's as old as the human condition. It's just Cain and Abel on a massive scale. The human heart is desperately wicked, my friends. Deceitful above all things, and who can know it? So, we know this. Herod has done all of this. Um, And then 17 and 18 reflect on another fulfillment of prophecy. It says, then was fulfilled, verse 17, what was spoken um, by Jeremiah the prophet saying, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and weeping. If you have your Bible and want to turn back there, go to Jeremiah 31. You don't have to. You can listen carefully, but uh, you might notice uh, note this in your mind. Jeremiah 31, verse... uh, Oh, I'll start... um, in verse, I'll start in verse uh, 15, I guess. Um, Jeremiah is all about the Babylonian captivity, you know, and all the difficulties that en- enveloped the nation. And uh, Jeremiah, like many of the prophets, speaks of woe and he speaks of restoration. And he says, this, thus says the Lord, a voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted for her children because they are no more. A dear woman pictured here weeping for children murdered or lost, kidnapped because she just refuses to be comforted because they're gone. Inconsolable. Refusing to be comforted. That's what that means. Thus says the Lord, Refrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for your work shall be rewarded, says the Lord, and they shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope in your future, says the Lord, that your children shall come back to their own border. Listen to verse 18. I have surely heard Ephraim bemoaning himself. You have chastised me and I was chastised like an untrained bull. Restore me and I will return, for you are the Lord my God. Surely after my turning I repented, and after I was instructed I struck myself on the thigh. Can you picture that? You know, I am, this is how we do it today. You know, not, not just like whack yourself on the thigh, but just like, oh, I'm such an idiot. <laughs> I'm so sinful. I want you to get the weight of this. This is amazing. I think a, a good application. Matthew likens the distress of the mothers under the cruelty of Herod to the past distress when Israelite mothers were grieved because their children were killed or kidnapped during the invasion by Babylon. They were taken away. Now, and that's just a historical fact. And those poor mothers would be inconsolable for a long time. But listen, there may be weeping for the night, but what comes? Joy. 
Refrain your voice from weeping. It's time to turn away from the weeping and your eyes from tears for your work will be rewarded, says the Lord. They will come back. There is hope. God says, take what application you can of that for yourself, my friends. What loss have you experienced in your life? What difficulties, what trials, what Babylonian captivities? God encourages His own lost his own who have lost children in these ways, that they will be delivered from their tears in the future. In the Babylonian captivity, the children would return maybe after the third and fourth generation, as we learned in our studies in Daniel. But notice the contrast, and this is important, the deep sorrow is what underlies the great joy and blessing of a future hope and restoration. You get that? God gives the hope, the hope for our hearts and our minds in, in the context of the deepest of sorrows, inconsolably weeping. God says you will have that much, as deep as your weeping is, as high your joy will be. That's the contrast. He, he sets them side by side to get our attention to say, you will be restored. There is hope for your future. Let me suggest this. Amongst the hardest griefs that one can experience is the loss of a child. For those who are believers today who have lost a child, perhaps a child in infancy, a child later in life, There is only the need for patient continuance in doing the will of God until we see that loved one again. All we have to do is wait. It was like Andy, our brother, with the hope that his father repented and turned to Christ. All he has to do is say, see you later, Dad. Yeah. We'll see you again. There is hope for your future. And so, take from that, my friends, the, the idea that out of the depths of inconsolable sorrow, depression and grief, God will bring a joy which is, well, you might think is unbelievable right now in the midst of your lowly sorrow and your, your walk on this sod but He will bring great joy. And so, that was not the case though in the moment for the women in Bethlehem, in Ramah. Rachel and her descendants weeping for her children. They were inconsolable because of this butchery. Yet they had to look to a future when they would see those children again. If they were believers, the children, uh, not believers because they were under two years old, but I mean the parents, you know, the children God would graciously regenerate, I believe, and bring them to heaven. And so we're left there with that terrible situation under the rage of Herod. And, you know, somehow in the wisdom of God, I don't understand it, but sometimes God allows things to happen that have. Uh, collateral damage. Why did God allow children to die who were not the Messiah child? Think about that. Why did that happen? Why couldn't God prevent that? 
Well, God could prevent that. He decided for some reason in his wisdom not to. And uh, to make the threat real and to make the grief real and perhaps years later some of those mothers would see the Messiah all grown and ministering and and maybe put two and two together and say, hey, he was born in my city back in that day. I wonder if he's the reason why Herod was so upset. Maybe. Well, if they were believers, they probably certainly know now. Well, one other uh, little section here. We, we were fleeing with the newborn king, now we're returning with the newborn king. That's in verse 19. When Herod was dead, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the young child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the young child's life are dead. So he arose, took the young child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. Now, I'm, I'm sure that their leaving Egypt was not as harried and frantic as their entering Egypt. <laughs> However, he did obey. Another change of situation, another dream of Joseph. This is the fourth of five dream revelations recorded in Matthew, another one coming up here. Herod was dead. Jesus stayed, and that's, that's the irony of the whole thing, isn't it? Those that want to live forever and have uh, forever power and, and try to kill others, they end up dying, meeting their maker, being judged, cast into the lake of fire or Hades, and Jesus was alive. His stay was fairly short in Egypt, I think, because Herod died in 4 B.C. Jesus may have been born as early as 6 B.C., perhaps, but around there somewhere. He didn't stay there for many years. Herod died and his kingdom was split between Herod Archelaus, Herod Philip II, and Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas is the Herod we're familiar with from the Gospels, that fox, Luke 13. Once again, Joseph obeyed immediately. I want you to think of this. Joseph is often lost in the shuffle of the busy course of history with the person of Christ. And of course, with Christ and His importance and His his elevated status and He's the Son of God, you would expect that in a way. But just think of how God used this otherwise no-name individual who was, well, supposed to be in the line of the kings but was reduced to poor carpentership. God used this faithful man to protect and provide for the Messiah and his mother and his other siblings as well. Joseph might have been a nobody, but he was consistent, he was reliable, he was faithful, he was obedient, and he was just. He was a good man, even though he was nobody. We don't hear anything about him after Jesus was 12. I've always understood that to mean that sometime between Jesus' 12th birthday and his 30th that his dad died. His dad was probably a little bit older to begin with and uh, he had a hard life and perhaps became ill or had an accident or, or just died of, of uh, old age at that time, which could have been 40s, 50s maybe. But... In some ways, Joseph was insignificant. But, in other ways, he was a hero. A hero behind the scenes who carried on God's will. 
Now, when he came back, he was using his little noodle and he said, uh, well, I don't want to go near Judea and Bethlehem because, you know, uh, one of the Herods is still there. It was too close to Herod's son. And uh, this guy might also feel likewise threatened by Jesus, the child king. So, and in fact, we know from history, Archelaus was brutal and he was incompetent. You can't have much more of a bad combination. Brutal, that's bad. Incompetent is bad, but when you put them together, oh boy, that's terrible. Just terrible. The throne upon which Herod and his son sat belonged to Jesus. He was a king in the line of David. And so another dream came to Joseph when this fear came upon him that uh, he should go and turn into the region of Galilee. It says in verse number 22, uh, he turned aside into the region of Galilee, so he went north you know, around Samaria, or maybe through it, but perhaps around it is the way they would normally travel. Uh, of course, Jesus didn't do that. He, he had an appointment there to meet with somebody later on in life. But anyways, it says in verse 23, And he, that is Joseph, came and dwelt in a city called Nazareth, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, that is a mystifying passage to me. Uh, several interpretations have been offered of this idea of the Nazarene. Uh, Nazareth or Nazarene could be a loose translation of a branch from Isaiah 11, the stem of Jesse. That's a word that's related in Hebrew. Um, second possibility, Matthew could be referring to some spoken but unwritten prophecy that mentioned the Messiah is coming from Nazareth. And the third possibility that is offered by the commentators is since Nazareth was a despised place, you know that from John chapter 1. Remember John chapter 1, can any good thing come out of? I mean, that's like, you know, what good comes out of, you know, what? Vegas or something, you know, pick some city that's got a sin reputation. Uh, it's an indirect way of quoting the prophets who predicted that Jesus would be despised and rejected, not esteemed, stricken, smitten by God, maybe. Uh, these second and third possibilities seem most plausible, that it's a despised place or that there was an unwritten prophecy about Him that was in the conscious, consciousness of Israel as they, as they went forward in their, their prophets and their Bible teachers. But um, there's really nothing we can hang on to for sure that tells us the answer to this inquiry. What does it mean that he would be called a Nazarene? Where is that at? Some even suggest that this is from Nazir, which refers to a uh, Nazarite vow. But that's a different word actually. So it, it sounds very much the same in, in English, but it's not the same. And so we're kind of left hanging a little bit with that. But you know what? Matthew wrote it, the Spirit of God inspired it or breathed it out so we know that it's true. Somehow along the line, the prophet spoke of something that indicated this. And again, it's not that you know, we even necessarily have to find one prophecy that, that's a predictive prophecy. This could be some kind of analogy like he's despised. We just don't know for sure. I don't anyway. Maybe somebody else does who's a little more equipped than I am. But we're going to leave that at that. So... Here we have the godly parents 
of a unique child, the eternal fate of all humanity rests on this child. And humanly speaking, then the the entire fate of humanity rests on the obedience of his parents. Think of that. If he had not, Joseph had not taken the child to Egypt, you would not be saved. Now that's such a hypothetical, it's not even on the radar screen, but I'm just saying everything relied upon their obeying the, the command of God. Our eternal fate is determined by our response to this child. As Simeon said to Mary, the child is destined for the fall and rising of many in Israel. Many will speak against him and fall. Others will receive him and rise. And to those who receive him, to them God gives the privilege and the right to become children of God. Without this proper response to Christ, this whole story is in essence meaningless. Christmas is meaningless. You know, we talk about this usually at Christmas time and we're about a month past that now, but uh, I can't believe that already. Almost a month ago Christmas Day was. But, you know, without the right response to Christ, Christmas is meaningless. If you have a response like Herod, not good. More like the wise men, although sadly they weren't believers in the God of Israel. They were, they were pagan, believed in mythologies and, and the stars and astrology and all these things. But at least they worshipped the King of Kings. And uh, we should do that at least <laughs> because we know Him. We should know Him. The Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the, the whole meaning of the Christmas story. So I trust that's meaningful to you. We're going to quickly fast forward from this point in the uh, t- timeline because that's what chapter 3 does. It just immediately says, in those j- days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness. Well, we're about 30 years down the line, just like that. Maybe 28 or something. You know. So it's amazing how the time scale is compressed. But we're going to jump right ahead into Matthew chapter 3. Lord willing, the next time we're going to see the message of the Gospel of Christ coming to the nation of Israel. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I want to thank You for this Word tonight, for the uh, exhortation about the brutality of the human race and the comfort of the Scriptures that bring hope and for the example of an obscure man named Joseph. Lifted out of obscurity by his presence on these pages of Holy Writ, but yet at the time he was a nobody Yet he was behind the scenes a hero, a man who obeyed God and was a just man, an obedient man, a faithful man, a reliable and consistent man, and a man who was superbly outfitted to be the head of household in the family in which the Christ would grow up. We thank you for that. And may our families, may our lives be like these ones. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We wish you all a good night. May God bless you and keep you. Amen.